Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. <laughs> This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast dedicated to serving the Ram and his Ramalama Ding Dong. Today we're talking about the Conjuring universe of films piloted by James Wan, prompted by the recent release of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, getting demons to possess my neighbors just for kicks. I'm Erica Spires, and if there's one thing I learned from church, it's that the road to hell is paved with good intentions and bad decisions. Nice. And I'm Brian Hurt, and everything I'm going to be saying today is loosely based on my opinions. Are you based on a real person, Brian? (laughs) A real real person who is much more morally suspect than yourself. (laughs) If that's possible. These loosely based stories are sure something else, I tell you. If you ever want to really have a movie be ruined, like look up what part of this was true. It's like, yeah, there were people who had those names. (laughs) okay that's good so conjuring verse who had seen some of these movies before this latest one came out i had when i was doing carousel in 2018 and 19 i was in a dressing room with like 13 women and we had a lot of downtime and one day i noticed that all these girls were watching a scary movie and huddled in a corner together Most of the time backstage, we weren't watching it during the show. We would watch it between shows on Saturdays. Wow. I don't know if the mic can pick that up, but we got a great storm. Ooh. (laughs) So we would sit in our dressing room, huddled together. And I noticed that they were watching the first Conjuring movie. And I kind of paid attention. And then they watched Annabelle. And then they watched Conjuring 2. And so that's when I I started watching with them. And that was around the same time that The Nun came out. So we all had a girls' date together and all went to watch The Nun late at night after a show. So they're just very fun. I don't think they're all good by any means, but they're fun scares. Well, that is very cinematic, that description. I'll try to one-up you if I can. Please. So the circumstances of my watching these movies, and I did watch all the previous Conjurings in advance of this newest one coming out in our podcast. Imagine the world where a pandemic had swept across the globe. Yeah, so I had a lot of free time during the (laughs) pandemic and pulled up a website that listed like the top 10 scariest movies. And for some reason, these movies were on it. So we just watched them, all 10 on the list. That my wife and I hadn't seen. We had seen some of them. But the first two conjurings were both on the list and i liked them but i'm not so sure i'd call them scary but there were definitely other ones on that list that were scarier maybe we'll get to that what about you mark well horror movies are part of my junk food of entertainment along with stupid action movies and i know as i've told before brian and i used to with our friends in high school rent really just the worst horror movies just the dumbest and when we find one that had a plot or had some decent acting it was a revelation it was amazing (laughs) 
this actually makes some bit of sense. And so I still retain some of that low expectation for horror movies. And I remember just running across The Conjuring on one of the streaming services at some point and like, yeah, this is actually good. These are good actors. This is fairly well paced. And I've kept up with the films over the years for the most part. I'm wondering, Erica, like The Nun, I assume it was actually good seeing it in a theater late at night. At least it did its job. Whereas when I saw it, I was just like, I could just throw this away. I have no, no use for this. No, it story. even fell flat in the theaters. I mean, <laughs> okay. yeah, there, there were, of course, there were moments that are scary and scarier when you're sitting in the dark. And I usually go to see movies with my husband. So going with a bunch of people that I wasn't comfortable, like necessarily like grabbing onto. <laughs> yeah, it had its moments, but it, I, no, it was, it, you know, I think The Nun was a real disappointment, unfortunately. Start with that. <laughs> I watched La Llorona yesterday as the last one that I didn't realize was part of this universe until the last minute. And I was bored as shit. I had, it was not a good experience. I did not care about these people at all. You know, some of the the tablecloth being pulled up by itself, like there's little individual things that are somewhat effective, but as an overall experience, I think those are the two low points. I was watching La Llorona today and... I watched it with commercials because they took it off of the streaming services. So now you can watch it on TNT, but you have to watch it with commercials every so often. And that really takes some of the suspense out of the experience. But I still enjoyed it. And I think the reason that I enjoyed it and even the bad ones I still enjoy is that there's an old horror movie feel to all of them. And it's not just because most of them are set back in the 70s or before. It's those types of scares. It's the very quiet hand coming over the bathtub or something you barely see out of the corner of your eye and you know that a bed sheet is getting pulled back or something like that. And those are the things that I think are really scary because when we in, well, for one, it's just this suspense of not having to see the monster, right? But also I think when any of us have been scared in our lives, whether in childhood or adulthood, The things that are scary tend to be the creak that you hear and you wonder if somebody's in the house or something mysteriously turning on or off. So I think those are relatable and so much more effective than seeing somebody's scary face. I totally agree with that, Erica. We should probably talk a little bit about what the hell we're talking about with The Conjuring Universe, that there is a series of movies that started with the movie The Conjuring in 2013 with the characters of Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were, should we call them Ghostbusters? What were they? Definitely Ghostbusters. (laughs) Definitely. Paranormal investigators? Um, Yes. They were supposedly based on real people. And the famous case that they were involved with was the Amityville Horror case, which was made into a book, which I read in the 90s and was made into a movie which scared the poopy out of me when I was a little kid watching it on TV to the (laughs) point where I had to rewatch it as an adult to just find out how scary it was. But in any case, they made this first movie, which is based on another case, loosely based on another case, but involving the investigation by this husband and wife team played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. And they went on to make two more of these movies, as well as a number of related movies all set in what they're calling the Conjuring universe or the Conjuring verse. If we can put those together, probably shouldn't. And those include three animal movies, The Nun, and 
not La Llorona, the Guatemalan film from 2019, but the Curse of La Llorona, which is an American movie that came out in the same year, based all in that universe. To then follow up on the point you were making, Erica, I totally find the uncanny and the sneak up, just notice something and get creeped out by it way more scary than something that's, I mean, I'll jump when there's a jump scare because I'm a jumpy person, but it's kind of empty calories for me. Whereas if something, if I'm just watching something and then I finally notice like a scary face in the background that's been there for a minute and I haven't noticed it, like that's poop my pants as, as an adult now. It's like, oh my God. It's so much worse. When you see the face and the face screams at you or maybe it grabs you and then that's it and it just lets go and disappears, that's, that, that can be a real problem. I could see that maybe happening once it screams at you, you scream back, it gets scared and runs away. But like, what's the real point? You know, we need to see, like, I want to see that if that ghost or that demon is coming up, it's got a purpose for it, you know? It it just likes to torture you a little bit. And you, you don't always see that with these movies that just constantly show you the face of something. The creepy works so much better, in my opinion, so. The creepy face, it seems like, I feel like I see a lot of covers of horror movies, right? On the streaming services as you scroll past. And a very common thing is like to have a sheet of some sort and have the face pressed against it. So you see the outline of the face. Mm-hmm. And we get this in the, in the current movie, I think. Was it a face in the waterbed or there was something in the waterbed? Yeah. The ha- a hand or, you know, the just any, any human parts coming out of a surface that look like they should not come out of, which was a very easy, like, 90s computer graphic things to do. Isn't that like kind of Odo in... In Star Trek Deep Space Nine, that's the kind of technology we're talking about. Yeah. Something frightening about that. (laughs) Body dysmorphia, maybe that's it. The movie Annabelle, which I guess is really the first spinoff from the Conjuring series of the actual Conjuring movies, right? That involves a doll that gets cursed. And even though it does have some jump scares and we do see some like real demony faces come at us it's really worth noting that that doll never animates in a way it never goes full chucky right it doesn't like turn its eyeballs and look at you it doesn't talk or articulate its arms it does lift in the air at one point but most of the times it moves around it's while you're not looking at it and i think that even though that's not really all that scary a movie either that was an effective choice to make with that, that it was moving around in our imaginations. And generally, when we saw it, it was just being a doll. I, it could be mistaken, but I was watching for that. And I, I think they played it pretty straight as far as that went. I admit to not having seen the second or third Annabelle movie. Maybe someone else did and can comment on whether Annabelle starts cracking wise like the Bride of Chucky. Well, here's something. Did you know that the original Annabelle doll was just a Raggedy Ann? I suppose they couldn't use that because of rights. That seems way scarier in a way than just this. <laughs> the most unbelievable thing in the original Annabelle film was that even before the doll, you know, was sort of smashed up and partially burned, that some woman would see this thing and be like, that's the perfect addition to my collection. Thank you so much. I'm going to prominently display this incredibly creepy thing. I totally, right. <laughs> totally disagree with you, Mark. And my in-laws were in the antique business for decades. And if you go into an antique store and look at the dolls, they are 
creepy ass. Like they were totally creepy. They Annabelle isn't the creepiest doll I've seen in real life because they are uncanny and weird. And it was made to look creepy for the TV show. But like real dolls out there are also horrifying. Just throwing that out there. But if they could have found the rights to do the actual Raggedy Ann, though, not that it would matter so much to kids today, but you imagine like kids in the 70s and 80s watching or reading accounts of this and seeing the doll and then they have their own Raggedy Ann or Raggedy Andy at home and then they start to see things like that's terrifying as a kid. Did you have a Raggedy Ann or Andy? I think my brothers had a Raggedy Andy. I don't remember if I had a Raggedy Ann. I was like right on the tail end of that. There was a Raggedy Ann in our house. She was my sister's and she tried to kill me once. Okay. But it was fine. Yeah, no, I I came out all right. Good. Is it not confusing or trippy that the star of the film, Annabelle, her real name is Annabelle? Annabelle Wallace, right? Whoa. There's an overdetermination of the Annabelle-ness of the Annabelle. Because in the original film, there's someone who's basically like part of the Manson family, but it's this cult of the Ram who is on a murder spree and then she's killed and she lets her spirit into the Annabelle doll, her, you know, her blood. And so that would be fine. But then they had to do this Annabelle prequel that explains, no, 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 way before this time, there was a different girl named Annabelle who died, who her parents wanted her spirit to come into the doll and a demon got in there instead and then it turns out that this Annabelle from the new movie is related to, you know, ran into that doll in the past movie and was infected, possessed. And so basically was giving the spirit back and in fact changed her name, I guess, to Annabelle at some point between the two movies. So then she could die and put the demon back into the doll. Although I guess it was merely coincidence that I only figured out just watching one of those videos that you had sent me earlier today all the stuff connected up and it was just too much. You already set up an origin for this thing. You don't need a second earlier origin. What I think you're tap dancing around, Mark, is these movies aren't that good. Maybe the first Conjuring <laughs> was pretty good and maybe a couple of more good, but these spinoffs and sidequels and prequels, why are they making more and why is there a Conjuring universe that is so robust? I just assume it's money. I always just assume that Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga and James Wan just like making films together. They must be making a shit ton of money off of it because they're not great, but they're well acted for the most part. Well, yeah, having Lily Taylor in the first one is yeah. just amazing. I mean, it's a little like eating at McDonald's when you're on the road and it's not particularly good, but you know exactly what you're going to get. And so you have expectations. Fairly low, but they are met or exceeded. And with these movies, like I could watch a totally new horror movie or that's not part of a series, and it could really be just awful. I mean, or it could be something else entirely, right? You just never know. And you do come across ones that are terrible or that are flawed, but are really interesting, like uh, Hereditary, for example. But at least with this, you're not going to get Hereditary or anything like it. But you know what you're going to get, and it's going to be good and evil that's very churchy, and the effects are going to be pretty slick, and you start to kind of recognize the beats of the show as it goes along, and by the time you're done, you've wasted, or you've spent, two hours have, you are two hours closer to your death, and you've seen another movie that 
met exactly what your low expectations were. So you enjoyed yourself. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I will tell you, I really liked that it was tied to the Warrens because I did know their story and I was familiar with the Amityville horror. And it was kind of neat to see something that was tied to the kind of the golden age of, I don't know if you'd really call the seventies, the, the golden age of horror demon horror, but it was, you know, between the exorcist and the Amityville horror, the omen, that's really when the kind of the full blossoming of horror framed in the terms of, the church really came into its own. And that was a big part of, you know, I saw all those as the movie of the week when I was way too young to be watching them and getting utterly terrified. I wonder if those recycle themselves in a similar way that, you know, fashion or music recycles itself. Like, are we getting all these conjuring movies now because it's been about 40 years? So like we get like 20, every 20 years, something like that. And I'm trying to think if there's an equivalent that happened in the nineties of demon horror it just seems like there's been a constant sprouting of terrible horror movies first continuously. I'm sure there have been ups and downs in terms of the number per year. So I could not tell you. It seemed like it was a more of an 80s thing than a 90s thing. I feel like there was a, I don't remember if it was late 80s or the 90s, a TV show called Friday the 13th, the series, where there was a curio shop full of possessed items. And every episode they were trying to put something else to write. And the Warren's basement that's full of crap, including... Annabelle and things tied to the other movies struck me very much like, oh, here, this is just our, our warehouse full of plot devices. I don't know if I never saw Warehouse 13, but I had a sense that there may be, that was also a literal warehouse full of plot devices or needful things. And it's, I'd say it's a little lazy, but it also really works just to say, well, we have these people who put things to right and they have a room full of things that are tied to wrongs. And go tell another story and, and make it happen. And it's very episodic, very television-like, and not particularly rewarding. But you might say that about some of the other universes that are out there as well. You didn't see Annabelle Comes Home. That's where, in the Warren's house, starring the Warren's daughter, the Annabelle doll being taken out of its protective case activates all the other stuff in the room. So we get the introduction, the rapid introduction of several other potential spinoff, but probably like, I don't know, the guy with coins on his eyes or something. I guess it depends what kind of backstory you build around it. But I was reminded so much of in Cabin in the Woods, where they're walking around in this basement and like, which thing are they going to set up? Are they going to blow the horn that will summon the mermen of doom? Are they going to turn the crank of the music box that will summon the, you know, just had all this stuff lying around. Her name was the Sugar Plum Fairy. The <laughs> The girl whose face was just a giant maw full of teeth. But yes. And that, of course, once it's been so subverted, you can't ever go back to completely taking it seriously, right? And that's true of Annabelle, too. After the episode of The Simpsons, where the Krusty doll comes to life, at the end of the episode, the repairman comes and says, well, here's your problem. This doll's set to evil. And he, there's just a little switch on the back, and they switch him from evil to good. And now the doll just has to like wash Homer in the bath. And it's horrifying. It's its own kind of horror. Yeah, I guess there's not a lot of humor in these movies, but I think of that setup as funny, maybe because of this, these associations. So there's something like having a menagerie like that just seems like a fun idea to me. It does not seem like this is a clearinghouse of ultimately unrewarding spinoff films. No, I like stacking the stuff on top of each other, having a 
genre. You know, this is, I think, is the entire point of like why the Avengers is cooler than an individual superhero movie. You know, just having all these demons and things together and having the framing device of the Ghostbuster couple, I think is a great formula. I think that's, that's explains why they work. And the ones that are stinky are the ones that don't have Warren's much or at all in them. Yeah. And even like the Warren story is sometimes fairly laughable. If you think about all the times they're like, no, you shouldn't do this anymore. This is bad for you. Or I have a worry. It's like, well, clearly look at what your, your line of work is. You're both doing it. Like it's bad for both of you, but you're good at it. So like answer the call or don't, but like, we don't need to have a little song and dance of do we answer the call each time? I agree. I think the Warrens do really pull it together very well. I really was hoping that they would show up as some sort of like last minute effort in La Llorona. And they didn't. I mean, we did see the priest from a previous film there. The fake F. Marie Abraham. Exactly. I thought it was F. Marie Abraham. (laughs) It is not. That's so funny. We got Linda Cardellini as the lead, who is just so freaking great in everything she does. Although I did, speaking of things that aren't funny or you want to be funny. I actually found it funny every time she woke up from like being thrust across the room, she would be like, "Ah!" and just scream and then like run and scream. I was like, wow, she earned her paycheck in screams. (laughs) What is that getting you? You know, what is it getting you? There was very little humor in these and they could have used some, I think that judiciously. Yeah. Perhaps a sidekick to go along. With the Warrens, a bumbling sidekick, perhaps. <laughs> make snarky comments. Hmm. Let's have our ad break, but I want to tell you how you can perhaps never hear ads on this podcast again. You just need to go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop and sign up to be a supporter of this podcast because, you know, this is a boutique product. It does not have as many listeners as would make these few advertisements that we have actually pay enough to generate a continuous profit. Brian and Erica have done many of these episodes entirely for free, and I would love to pay our editor Tyler a little more for these. So I'm asking you, if you are a regular listener, just a small monthly contribution. And for every single one of these episodes, you're going to get our after talk, where we more freely talk about what we're consuming right now and think about future topics. On this particular after talk for episode 101 here, there is big, big news about the future of the podcast. So if you care about the future, go sign up right now. That's patreon.com slash pretty much pop. I'd like to tell you about HelloFresh, where you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. First, HelloFresh saves you time and stress. I don't know what to cook for my family. I don't want to have to think ahead, go to the grocery store, buy ingredients specifically for this recipe. That is something that I can only get myself to do like once every six months. With HelloFresh, they get delivered to me. I can prep them in 30 minutes or less. And HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store. And their gourmet recipes like balsamic fig sirloin, those are over 72% cheaper according to a Zagat's dining survey than an average restaurant meal. They also have a special line of quick and easy meals, which are 15 to 20 minute dinners, or they've got breakfast on the go, 10-minute lunches. These are perfect for your busy schedule. And, man, they've got variety. More than 27 recipes at any given time that you can pick from on a week-to-week basis or skip a week, double up, whatever you want. 
They've got a wide range of flavors, cuisines, ingredients. You will never get bored. You could try something new every week. I recommend the spinach nochi with heirloom tomatoes. That was a favorite of my family's. And among these choices are low-calorie, vegetarian, family-friendly, carb-smart, pescatarian. In all cases, these are fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients. So you can make meals that are delicious and nutritious. Over 90% of the ingredients are sourced directly from farmers to ensure only the freshest produce and proteins are delivered right to your door. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 14Pretty and you can use the code 14Pretty for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash 14Pretty. Use code 14Pretty for up to 14 free meals and free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Curious, what did you guys think of the new one? The devil made me do it. I thought it was pretty good. I don't know that it was as creepy as the other ones, but I was not bored in the way I was with Yorona. It was not completely predictable throughout. There were silly things about it, but I was okay with it. I think it was the least good of the actual Conjuring movies. There's something I find just a little tiresome about the whole setup of them. Do you mean demon jumping? Like the demons jumping from host to host? Host jumping? I'm just putting my cards on the table. I find that the ability to fight demons through Catholic dogma and ritual is so asinine that I can barely stand it. It is the most absurd thing to me that a demon could give a rat's ass about holy water or incantations or the rest of it. Or their name being called. There's something fundamentally unbelievable about the war that's being fought here. And the premise gives the church so much power. Like, yeah, the, the Catholic church has the power to like fight off primal evil. It's like, no, it doesn't. I mean, okay, it does in your movie, but come on. It's just a bunch of ritual and words that couldn't possibly mean anything to these spirits. So you find it unbelievable and therefore frustrating. How would you prefer demons to be fought, Brian? By Ghostbusters. Like... <laughs> By science. Those electronic don't cross the streams, but by bumbling Ghostbusters. Um, like anything else, right? You just have to suspend your disbelief and buy into the premise and you're off to the races. And it's great if you can, but usually I can't. And I find that the movies that tend to be more satisfying, and I guess we're late enough into the podcast that we could spoil whatever we want is where you really can't fight them off in the end. And in Oculus, they try to science the hell out of that evil. And of course they can't, and the evil wins. And likewise with It Follows, they manage to maybe save themselves, but the thing that follows is still following by the end. Because I don't think we have a capacity to really battle a power supernatural. It just, it strikes me, it's like we're bringing a vial of holy water to a gunfight. I mean, come on. We have no chance. And that's the charm in these movies is people thinking that maybe they can win. But when they actually do, I find it just fundamentally disappointing because there's no way you're going to beat these guys. The demons tend to come back as well. Like we've had some of the same witches and demons in various movies, right? So I think that to me is the frustrating part. It's almost like, you know, you're going to watch another version of Michael Myers. I think it would be better if like if you defeat one, defeat it. And then I'm sure there are a slew of, of other demons, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer showed us that very well. You can always have more demons coming out of the Hellmouth. So to address more generally 
I think by the time of Buffy, Buffy's not scary at all. <laughs> and, no, no. And nobody pretends that it is. And that is a post-Christian take that I feel like when I was growing up and when these initial things in the 70s were coming out, you know, of course, it's not talking to everybody and experiences, but as somebody raised religious, yes, you can doubt. But like when the shit comes down, when you want to get really serious, when somebody asks, I just want to know what Christmas is about. Then you end up going back into this is what the serious people think. And it is something that there is a power from religion. And so when you're the plane is going down, even if you say that you don't believe in God, you start praying. And so I think that is the theory behind why these religious terror movies are supposed to clutch at our souls that whatever we consciously claim to believe and not to believe, when it really gets down to it, we would absolutely go to the priest. Most of these characters that are going to the priest are like, I don't really believe in this stuff. And the priest's like, it's okay. I do. The religious people can deal in productive ways with the non-believers around. And we're just at a new era. And so I think that the Buffy thing, unless this is a sign of our post-ironic world, that the Buffy area was the ironic world, but I don't feel like these things can, for that reason, be honestly scary to a lot of us anymore. But maybe there's still a lot of people that popularity of these is in part explained because they still have those underlying Christian or explicitly avowed Christian beliefs. I remember as a child being extremely scared by the movie Fallen. And I was scared by Fallen for a number of reasons. One is they had like a creepy serial killer in the beginning that was getting ready to be killed, executed. And you find out there was a demon that was possessing him. And then this demon kind of does its thing and it floats about. And as far as I recall, like I said, I was very young when I watched this. I don't remember seeing the demon. The demon just inhabits various people. And the demon is identified by the way that your gestures, your body changes, and this song, Time is on my side, that keeps going throughout the movie. To me, that was the most terrifying thing because in that universe, all a demon had to do was touch one person to get its claws into the next person, right? And it could just keep going on. And I was so scared by that idea that it didn't matter how good I was or what I did, all it would take is a demon wanting to come into my body via another human, and that would be it. And shall I point out that, once again, the humans were not up to the task of defeating it? No, they weren't. How could we be? Yeah, that's way too powerful. And I think that was the scariest part. There was nothing in Fallen that showed that they defeated it at all. Like you thought that they might have. And then you hear that song, right? Right. They had a method to possibly do it, but it didn't succeed. So yeah, I'm not trying to say this as to go back on what I said earlier. Like if you're going to defeat it, just defeat it. But based on the rules in your universe, you should either be able to defeat it or not. And if you can't, that's fine. But then the movies need to have something else that grips you other than the, the hope that good will triumph over the evil. They've got to grow in, in intensity in some way. And people understanding like, oh, we can't actually ever, like, wait a minute, we had that movie yet. Oh, we can't actually defeat it. So what are we going to have to do to keep it at bay? I'm sure if we're there enough in our remembering through all the movies we've seen, there are probably like, as long as you give it the victim it wants, then it's satisfied for a while or it can go back to hell. For a while, yeah. It seems like there are lots of narrative ways out of this besides... I don't know if I've seen one where the demon actually just wins and takes over the world. 
Has that been a thing? Did you not already mention Cabin in the Woods? Oh, all right. Well, a serious one, I guess I should say. (laughs) The frequently asked questions list for Cabin in the Woods. Will there be a sequel? Did you watch the movie? (laughs) It's like the thing taking over individuals, and we have to keep it here, that there's always been the temptation, and maybe there will be at last a sequel where it just becomes an epidemic. And yes, it gets to the mainland, and so everybody is dead. <laughs> but that, I can see you know, a similar thing with demon possession or something, if it really can be something that is catching. We talked about the 1970s invasion of the body snatchers, and that was on a previous episode, and that was another one where we lose. But maybe that was the mood we were all in in the 70s. <laughs> maybe we're better off letting the pod people take us over. That might have been an improvement. I don't know. We've mentioned the connection between enjoyment of this and real life feelings about religion or how that affects our... It wasn't until researching this, you had linked us to an article, Brian, that was just every time Ed and Lorraine Warren were exposed as total frauds. <laughs> right. Where knowing that this is based on real people is only good until you start looking at the real people and feeling like, I don't know if these people should be glorified in this way or I don't know. How do you feel about this whole thing after looking into that connection? I always assumed that this was all fraudulent. So it changed nothing for me. Right. I didn't like, oh, it was based on a true story that turned out to be total bullshit. I'm just, (laughs) I'm shocked and I'm so saddened that the real Annabelle doll was not actually uh, not actually possessed. It's a good narrative device because when you still don't know, even if it was based on facts that were driven by charlatans, it's kind of nice not knowing what maybe did or didn't happen. And if, in fact, someone claimed demonic possession in a courtroom, like, I don't know if that's true or not, but... That is true. As you're watching it, like, I don't know if it's true or not, but... We talked about the trial of the Chicago 7. There were some things that actually happened and some that didn't. And if it's not obvious which are things that happened and which are things that were added to the story for the sake of making a movie, that's kind of nice because you're left feeling like the filmmakers are bending without breaking. And when it comes to supernatural stuff, I just assume, well, that likely didn't happen, though. I guess I don't really know, but that's not the part that I'm expecting them to be taking liberties with. It's the more mundane things, as you said, Erica, that we saw that the plea was changed later. Maybe it started off as being demonic possession, but it became something else. I forgot the details. I guess it's more just how, of course, if the real events are bullshit, then you would assume that this couple is a couple of of scumbag, either con artists or self-deluding or both. But sort of having that part confirmed as compared to these very virtuous hero and heroines, self-sacrificing individuals who love their families and just are helping in every way they can. It's not a great legacy (laughs) to be promoting. So I knew some of this, but I didn't know all of it. I'm just looking at the article that Brian gave us. So I knew that, yes, they did actually claim demonic possession. The defense did. It did not work. And the dude went to prison. But then later on, this was in 2007, after he went to prison for his crime in 2007, David's older brother attempted to sue Lorraine Warren and Gerald Brittle, author of the requisite true story book, The Devil in Connecticut, for unspecified damages. He claims his family was manipulated by the Warrens 
that they and Brittle concocted a phony story about demons in an attempt to get rich and famous at their expense. And he feels like there was a mental illness that was exploited for monetary gain. So then it becomes way more sinister, actually, if you're thinking about these people who took advantage of people with mental illnesses saying like, oh yeah, it's a demon and demons gotcha. You know, maybe Ed and Lorraine Warren also had some mental illness there. So that's a kind of a scarier story to talk about. Uh, (laughs) Right. There is some better story about Ed and Lorraine Warren, which is like their real story and not like Professor M and the Wonder Women. Like I, I don't like, I really want like the real story of these two and what real shenanigans they were up to, because that would be super interesting. All the chaos. (laughs) They could actually link this in, in the actual Conjuring universe as well. It would take some creativity, but... Them getting sued and things? No, but like I think they could even call out the fact that, oh, this whole universe has been created around this story, but here's the true story, and talk about how... I think they could bring in the past stories that actually happened, show you what happened, and still do it in the same style and the same not with the same actors but they could call out to those specific movies someone smarter than me someone who's a an author should do this i think after the goose that lays the golden egg is dead and has been dead for a little while that's how you resurrect this thing by having that west craven's new nightmare that's right where robert england is somehow a character the actor who plays Freddy Krueger is is now also in the movie. And so you have that meta level. I think it's time will come, but it will be after these movies stop being profitable. I think that's how these things will keep getting made. I don't know for sure. Like, I'm not behind the scenes at all. But it strikes me that just the way that some movies that had nothing to do with Cloverfield got the word Cloverfield attached to them because, hey, well, more people will watch it if we call it the Cloverfield paradox than call it some irritating science fiction Paradox Outer Space movie. That was the working title. Now that I I do know. I'll share that bit of information. (laughs) And for all you know, someone's pitching a a movie to someone and this is their idea. And they say, hey, you know what? Let's call those Conjuring people up and see if we can make this a Conjuring movie because that gives it instant audience. We tie it to the universe. We get the voice of one of the actors who are the main people or one of the supporting people get pulled in as a character. And now you've just been added to the mythology. And as you you already said, Erica, you know, a lot of it's just driven by money, but also no one wants to make something that no one's going to watch. So if that's a way to pull on eyeballs, I guess there's nothing wrong with it. But you end up getting a sameness to these stories because for something to fit in the conjuring verse, it has to meet some criteria. And I don't think you can do something really interesting and original the way that you can. I'm going to go back to, I've already mentioned both Hereditary and It Follows. And I don't love either one of those movies. But what I admire about both of them is that they just have such unique feels to them. And when I was done watching them, I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, I've seen that movie before. Mm -hmm. And that counts for a lot. I feel like so often that is my feeling at the end of a movie. It's like, yep, this is the nth time I've seen the same exact movie in yet another format. I feel like a lot of these Conjuring movies at least try to have something, whether it's the relation to the satanic panic in the new one, or in the course of La Llorona, it was about child abuse. So that the main character is a social worker who is looking after the welfare of these kids who seem like they're being abused by their mother, 
but of course it's really the ghost. And then when she, her kids are being attacked by the ghost, of course it looks like she's the one that did it, but they don't really do anything at all effective with that. Like there's a, one scene where she gets visited by her coworkers who are doing a welfare check on her kids and the tension between her and the other caseworker. Cause she was kind of a bitch to the other caseworker. <laughs> It was not at all effective, but that was the attempt to like make it, this is going to be the single mother dealing with everybody doubting your parental ability film. You're right. I think part of what could have made that more effective is if they stretched it out over a longer period of time, she goes away, she comes back and starts haunting them again. And then they start seeing these patterns and they're like, certainly it's this mom. You know, if the mom hadn't seen the ghost right away. Or even introduce some ambiguity that maybe it is the mom that's doing it. Maybe the mom's going crazy and doesn't know she's doing it or... Yes, make us question ourselves. Yeah, that's, I guess, when a movie can get you too, right? Is when you're questioning, can I trust my own eyes in this? Yes, if the camera is the unreliable narrator, is taking the place of the character, you know, how the character is viewing things, which might not be... Yes, and we have very reliable narrators in every single movie. Like, there's not a single one of these people who sees something who ends up actually not actually seeing it, right? That I can think of, where they're just crazy. So that's, you could flip it with that, too. Finally give us an unreliable narrator. Is the appeal of these films that they are, as Brian said, that I've seen this before, that it is, if you look back in cinematic horror history, you do have things like The Exorcist, like Poltergeist, like The Omen, those are actually memorable and worth remaking. Is there going to be a version of the Amityville horror made with these characters playing the Warrens? Like, I guess they sort of visited there as part of another, as part of Conjuring 2. But like, if you're going to make that part of the thing, fine, make a fourth version of that movie. <laughs> I don't know how many there have been. I, at least two. At least a couple, yeah. But yeah, so it seems like part of the reason why these things are popular is if not actual just nostalgia for these old films, but certainly what are the nuggets that actually came out of the 70s and the whole field of schlock and just forgettable, awful, super violent, no redeeming value, nobody that you can identify with. This is at least paying tribute to a good strain in horror history. That's really uh, damning with faint praise mark if that's the best you can come up with for the value of hours and hours of conjuring verse i just wish they would be scary like i know that maybe is a lot to ask because so many movies that attempt to be scary aren't and i think they're trying or am i wrong are they trying to make scary movies or aren't they i just think what maybe what's scary to us is has changed over the years right if we were 12 years old would we find these scary Maybe. I'm not sure. But I think for me, like as I go back and watch stuff that I was scared of as a kid, a lot of it's not as scary. The Shining still is. It must say something about either the movies or about me or about the way fear and memory works. I don't remember if any of the Conjuring movies, including the one that I just saw a few weeks ago, I don't remember if I was scared at all or had at least the pleasant, creepy feeling that goes with being scared or was flinching. I remember a little from the movie that I saw yesterday (laughs) that, yes, there were some things that made me actually flinch, but nothing that deep down burrowed into my soul. No. Also, none of us is Catholic. So I also wonder if that is at all an issue. 
You know, these are not stories that have gotten us as children and worried us in that kind of way. And I, I, I think that might have something to do with it. I myself, being Jewish, am constantly worried about the golem and the dibbic and Azazel, the demon, and the rest of it. So I got nothing for you, Erica. <laughs> you don't think that any of that would be scary to you, though, if it done in a conjuring way, but it was a story that you just had a more of an emotional tie to. We were talking about Fallen, which really was. That was a Old Testament demon. I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that the deep-seated fears that people have from their Catholic upbringings are the very real nuns who made their lives difficult and not any demons that maybe are uh, we're telling stories about. But I am so ill-equipped to even speculate, truthfully. There's got to be a genre of Catholic sex guilt horror stories of, uh, <laughs> you know, whether there's that, that film Teeth with the vagina dentata, a more general fear of women, but like just the monster is going to get you if you touch yourself. That was what I'm going to invoke it a third time. It follows, right? The, oh. the monster that comes after you, it's when you have sex. The Whoever you had sex with, it was following them, and now it's following you. And the only way for you to get rid of it is to pass the sin along and go have sex with someone else. And that creature just keeps coming after. And it's just, it's like a venereal disease. And it's this whole morality tale of the monster is going to get the last person who succumbed to carnal pleasure. So that's very tied up in that one. For sure, Mark. That's still not the beat-off horror movie that I'm looking for. I don't know to scare little kids with. It should actually be a, an after-school special, maybe cartoon. Maybe Fred Savage should be involved in some way. Fred which, Savage. Which teenage boys are driven to heart attacks or madness from the... I can't pitch this any further. That's enough detail. Gee, we should wrap this up. And I, I do want to reiterate that it is fun to watch these movies. They're just not particularly scary. But for people like me who get scared fairly easily, it's just the right amount of scary. These are horror films for people who can't take horror films, I think. You're making me want to try them with my family, who will never watch any horror movies of any sort with me. I'm very surprised to hear, Brian, that you, your wife sat through all these with you. Oh, yeah. Did she like them? I guess enough to keep it, watching as, them. As much as I did. Okay. Um, but we both also stopped watching after a while, so... I was disappointed enough with Annabelle to lose my momentum, but... Maybe just don't watch the Annabelle movies. Watch the things related to them, you know? I thought all three of those were okay. I didn't mind those. Even though they have much lower Rotten Tomato scores than the other ones, they did not bore me like Yorona and the Nun did. Those seemed the big weak points to me. All right. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, listeners. Love ya. Thanks, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.